You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hey everyone, I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. You're listening to episode 10 of Messy Jesus Business. I've been blogging at MessyJesusBusiness.com since 2010. Messy Jesus Business, the blog, and now the podcast, explores how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Now, on to our guest. In this episode, we'll hear from Ellen Walsh-Roseman. Ellen Walsh-Roseman is the Director of Wellness, Food Service, and Nutrition for the Harlan Community School District in Harlan, Iowa, and the founder and owner of Farm Table Delivery and Procurement. Ellen and her husband, Daniel, also farm with Daniel's family near Harlan, Iowa own a farm-to-table restaurant, and raise two children. Ellen believes that food can build communities and foster friendships. She's eager to have potlucks with neighbors, family, and friends once again after the coronavirus pandemic is over. You may remember the experience at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and how grocery stores quickly became bare as the food system struggled to keep up with changing consumer behavior. When this happened, Ellen was working to help the farmer connect with the buyer and feed an entire rural school district in Iowa. We discussed her experience and perspective on the real challenges following the gospel mandate to feed the hungry during this time. We also chatted a little about our family because Ellen is my younger sister. Enjoy. Hey, Ellen. Hi, Julia. (laughs) Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. I'm excited that you're here because I know that when the pandemic was beginning, your life got hectic quite quickly. So Ellen, how did you end up, I mean, obviously I know this, I've known you your whole life, but like for the sake of the Messy Jesus Business listeners, how did you end up becoming the woman that you are today? Uh, this woman with all these hats, right? Here you, you're an owner and the manager of Farm Table Delivery, which is a food distribution uh, business in, or cooperative, which word would you Food use? Hub. Food Hub in so- Southwest Iowa and part, and Eastern Nebraska, right? And also you're the owner of Milk and Honey, which is a farm to table restaurant. You're an organic farmer, a working mom of 
wonderful, my favorite children in the world, <laughs> my only niece and nephew. Okay. And, and now like your other job started right when the pandemic began and you're now the director of food service for your local school district. And so you have your hands in a lot of things and you're doing, I, I mean, I really see you as an expert and a person that understands the food system and agriculture and what it really takes to feed the hungry in, in our modern world. So I'm, but like, how did you get there? How did this become your passion? Because somehow we grew up in the same household and I never thought farming was exciting. <laughs> I, I didn't join FF8, wait, F8, F8, what's it called? Future Farmers of America. I never did that, you know? And when you were like in high school and you were working at the vet and, and like going for, for part-time job, like helping people with their farm chores and this and that. And I was like, oh, please, I'd rather be reading books. So somehow there was something that captured your imagination from a young age. I wonder what that is. Well, I think, I mean, to say this comically, Julia, you were kind of a sick child. <laughs> and when it came to helping unload hay and that kind of thing at Uncle Enix, you got out of that work. I did get out of stuff because like I would have a flare up of asthma and they would just say, Julia, just go inside and read. So yeah, I ended up bookish. <laughs> and I've always been um, the It's not to say I didn't read a lot of books. Um, but right. you did. Uh, when I was little, um, as you know, but your listeners don't, um, mom and dad were both working full time and also had started a goat dairy operation. And I was at that age of still having to be next to mom and dad and um, meeting, you know, depending on them. And uh, so spent a lot of time in the barn and um, goats are the kind of animal that are very docile and friendly around children and trustworthy that I don't think it was ever an issue for them to just like, let me go out in the yard with the goats and mm -hmm. quote unquote, play with them. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot of my memory. And then um, when I was in third grade, I, we had to do like a biography we're, we were partnered up and our partner interviewed us and you know the stereotypical questions like what do you want to be when you grow up and I said I wanted to be a farmer because I liked getting dirty and being outside hmm. and um you know then I kind of went through these different phases of like other avenues but I mean I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up so it's fine um, <laughs> um, and then I think too, because there's such an age difference between you and I, there's five years, I matured a lot quicker than a lot of my peers. So when mom and I would date or when mom would drag Colleen and I to like wrestling tournaments that were all day affairs and mm -hmm. I should tell the listeners Colleen's our other sister yes and and our the wrestler in our, in our family was not Colleen it was our no. brother, brother. <laughs> and um I did not watch where I went regardless of whatever school we were at was I was at the concession stand making sloppy joes you were yes 
I like wanted to be in the concession stand helping random people. You didn't even know them. You just were like, hi, I volunteered to help. Hi, you. can I help you? Like, who's this kid? Sure. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I've had some time to kind of think about that. Like, where'd this all start from? And then yeah. um, you know, I worked at the restaurant that you also worked at, and then mom and dad eventually bought, and then um, kind right. of worked my way up the ladder there. And then um, in high school, I joined FFA, and uh, FFA, for the listeners, um, is a leadership uh, organization for youth that has a heavy emphasis in agriculture. Um, and then that really kind of changed my gear set too. I started working, like you mentioned earlier, for a vet clinic doing picked up dog poop <laughs> in the yard. <laughs> I mean, someone had to. Very glamorous. Yeah. Um, we all got to start like, somewhere. <laughs> and yep, and like prep surgery packs. Mm -hmm. Then I worked for um, the milked cows for a dairy farmer. And when it came time to think about where I wanted to go to school, um, I thought I was going to, I thought I wanted to be an ag ed teacher. So um, a lot of schools around the country have um, agriculture courses. So I thought I wanted to be, go be a teacher for that. But I think I saw that you, you were doing the teaching thing and you know, you never want to do what your siblings are doing. <laughs> that was, that was part so, of your motivation. Uh, so I still just wanted to have something to do with agriculture. So I was state and you married a farmer. Eventually I find the guy that I probably should have been friends with my freshman year of college. And we had a lot of similar values and passion. Yeah. So Dana and I have been married 10 years. And, and when I first moved here to the farm, I really struggled about finding my foothold and like my identity and what I really wanted to do. And I very hesitantly started a vegetable farm and quickly found that there was a need for infrastructure and marketing support for mostly vegetable farmers or small scale farmers in Iowa. I didn't know I had started a food hub until about a year into it and Iowa State called me and said we need you to be a part of this project with other food hubs. So a food hub is an organization that markets, aggregates, and distributes locally or regionally grown products. So that could be maybe just meat or it could be produce or it could be value added or dairy. It, it could be a combination of all those things. And usually your market is a wholesale customer. Now what we saw in the pandemic is a lot of food hubs quickly pivoted because like for us, our food hub, 80% of our customers are restaurants or food service accounts. And when all the restaurants got shut down, our bottom fell out. So we quickly pivoted to doing door deliveries to people's homes. And um, so pretty much right away we did that and we haven't stopped. <laughs> it was a little crazy at the beginning, but we, cause it was like a new learning curve and new customer segment for us. And then also with the, with the pandemic happened was also in a farm to table restaurant, we serve uh, protein, beef and pork and eggs from our farm, as well as um, other products that are sourced through the food hub at our restaurant, Milk and Honey. Mm. Um, we shut down 
for two weeks until we could figure out what our service model was going to look like because we needed to shift that and we wanted to do it correctly. Um, so I was getting hit that way. Mm. It was really strange. And then I also uh, started a new job. <laughs> I mean, why not add to the challenges? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm, I took a full-time job mostly just to help my family make ends meet um, at the school. Uh, so now I'm the director of wellness, food service, and nutrition for the public school in our community. Wait, and I started I wellness was part of it. Direct, yeah, director of wellness, food service, and nutrition. So, are you leading exercise classes too, my sister? No, that's the PE teacher. Oh, okay. <laughs> so what I mean, and so you really had to learn that job. I know you did. You had to learn the job really quickly and deal with the fact that now you had to feed all the children in the school district um, yeah. when they were suddenly at home. Normally, schools have to feed out of the lunchroom and there's a certain like meal pattern like a uh, requirement that you have like elements that you need to have in it they uh state of iowa had a what's that do you mean like nutritional elements yeah so like how many how many grams of protein and how many cups of vegetables and fruit and mm -hmm. grain and that kind of thing okay so that's the National School Lunch Program. But in order to feed kids safely, it, has, it would have had to be fed through the summer feeding program with a non-congregate waiver. So that meant the state of Iowa had to apply to participate in the summer feeding emergency school program and get that waiver approved. And they had to tell like, how are they going to track it? Wow. So they found out on Friday of that week that they got it. School was announced on Monday. You mean like that it was online? No, school was announced that it was suspended. Oh. They didn't they didn't talk about what learning was going to look like. Oh. And I was basically ready to go. And um I told my boss in my plan I said because a lot of schools were like, "Well, we're just going to wait a week." And I was like, no, most people are only have enough food for three days. Wow. We have to feed these people within 48 hours of school closure. 30% of students get two of their three meals at school. Yeah. Like wow. depend on school. Breakfast lunch. and lunch. Yeah. 30% um, in your whole district. No, 30% in the whole nation. Oh. At our, in our district, it's 38%. Oh. Um, so 30% of children, like that's how they depend on their nutrition. Yeah. So we really have a role as schools to provide services. And you know, I kind of had to defend the case and say, no other parts of the school be providing any of that kind of service. You know, you know what I mean? Like we're not providing health care. We right. did provide behavioral and um, mental health care. Uh -huh. We have a in-school interventionalist uh, mental health therapists at our school oh, good. Um, but uh, so we continue to provide that via telemed but um, so uh, school is out the 17th and then we we implemented our plan on the 19th and um, we fed kids all the way to uh, 
May 24th, I think it was, or 3rd. I can't remember. And, and we fed and, 45, we, we served 45,000 meals. Wow. In that time period. That's amazing, Ellen. Congratulations. Um, yeah. The, and, and, you know, and I remember when you were telling me you were going to apply for this job and how excited <laughs> you were about being creative because you said, Julia, we went to the summer school, summer lunch program one time and they were like serving the kids like, um, corn dogs and, and yeah like what'd you say what was it they served um so like the summer feeding program in the past was run through the local grocery store that a partnership with them mm. and the kids got a hot dog bag of chips i think and an apple every day so it was the same thing and so this spring, my plan was to revamp the summer feeding program. That was the charge that was given me. Like, don't worry about anything else. Just focus on revamping the summer feeding program. We want the school to be facilitating it this year. So that's what I did. And I already had had that groundwork laid. And then um, the pandemic happened. And so we had um, public health, like when this all happened, I called public health and I was like, here's our plan, yes or no. And they said, you have to be delivering to people's doors. Wow. We don't want people going to sites and you know, we need people to be staying home. Wow. So we delivered to 200 doors. Who did the every, delivery? Every day. And we used um, like associates and some teachers and we used like the school vehicles. And I, come from the world of logistics with my food hub distribution business. So I had like 12 routes created all throughout the district. Huh. And like, you know, you might do like 12 to 20 different drops. Yeah. Um, we had like six routes in the town of Harlan, which was the bigger town in the school district. Um, and we did that all March, April, and May. Wow. We delivered to people's doors. And then we also had a grab and go site at the school where you just, drove through and picked mm -hmm. up and you changed the menu too i mean it was like you went from like court hot dogs and chips to like we're giving the kids like veggies and, and well yeah so and we had to use up like our inventory because oh, sure. we had a lot of fresh vegetables on hand when school shut down so we used those things up first and then um schools get a certain allocation of money from actually the department of defense which is i think they might just be the fiscal agent anyways um what? <laughs> yeah it's how oh. <laughs> oh, confusing <laughs> uh um talk about messiness <laughs> right anyway. um so like we got a pot of money for fresh fruits and vegetables and we needed to use it by the end of the fiscal year so we needed to use it by the end of june so and then they kept giving me more money from schools that didn't want any more oh. or open. So I kept like one day I logged onto the website and I had like an extra 3000 in there and I'm like, I have two weeks to use this. <laughs> oh. um, so in my, like, so we use as much fresh fruits and vegetables as we could. We did have some canned items we needed to kind of go through and some frozen mm -hmm. products. And we tried to do as much scratch cooking as we could. Um, but there were days when we were serving up to 700, we were doing seven, 
So we give them breakfast and lunch. So 700 students, 1400 meals. Wow. Right. Um, so, and there was a lot of morale issues with my staff and feeling burned out. And like, these were essential workers. Yeah. They're coming there and, you know, every day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, maybe other employees weren't, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? So it was a lot of, Oh, we don't have to do those things. Yeah, um, so much work. So hard though. And I mean, you did it. And I mean, and we're still doing it. <laughs> you're still doing it. You're still feeding. Like, yeah. So what's the summer feeding program looking like now? How many? So the summer feeding program, we had to, because of the, one of the waivers ended, we had, couldn't serve out of the school anymore. So then we had to, because it's like, they take um, uh, like low income poverty levels and that's mm. where you're supposed to be serving out of. So we just had to move like three blocks from the school and we're serving it out of a church. So we have like literally a drive through Mm. where you come and you say, I need seven meals and they give them to you Mm. and then you go. Mm. And we try to do out of five days a week, we try to do four of those days, a hot lunch item. Mm. Okay. So you're feeding thousands of people in all these different ways, growing the food, <laughs> distributing the food, running a restaurant, and feeding the children in the school district. So, Ellen, I mean, and you're a church-going Catholic. I mean, maybe not now in the pandemic. Not now. Not even I am at this point, Gary. <laughs> but Forgive like, me. <laughs> no. But, but how, what is this? You're, so you're doing this work of mercy, of feeding the hungry. And I'm wondering for you, like how the things connect in, in your, in your spirit, in your imagination? Well, um, I actually feel like my, the social justice of eating and agriculture really comes from the corporal works of mercy and from teachings of the church. Um, when I was in college, a bunch of us went to like a social justice conference and um, there was a whole session on, you know, eating as a political act and mm. Wendell Berry and all these, all these things and learning about the things that are the system and mm. how the system is oppressing so many people. And I think with the pandemic, it really exposed what a lot of us already knew that work in this, do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, about the implications of our current food system and how awful they are. And, mm-hmm. you know, a majority of the deaths here from COVID in Iowa are, are from migrant workers working at packing plants. Uh, and, um, yeah. you, you know, that's upsetting. And it's, mm-hmm. I always, I've said this for years. You, um, especially like women, because we primarily do a lot of the food voting mm-hmm. or food purchasing, we can dictate the kind of world and system we want and we kind of get to choose who is oppressed and and whatnot um so i've i always tell people um you get to vote three times a day and so and maybe five if you have snacks (laughs) So choose 
food that is going to break down these systems and, you know, uh, do things that are care for our environment, care for people, revitalize rural communities. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of ways you can do that. You can know who your farmer is. You can uh, get to know them on a relationship level. You can cut out that middleman. Um, you know, not buy the Tyson chicken. You can just go right to the chicken farmer. Um, you can shop the farmer's market. You can belong to a CSA. You can eat at a farm-to-table restaurant and ask them who their farmers are. You can choose organic. There's so many ways that will help do that. And I think people are recognizing that. So it's been really interesting. Um, us and that work in regional and local food systems have said for years, when will, when will we become relevant? Is it climate change? Well, it turns out it was a pandemic. Um, so lots of local farmers are seeing 300 to 600% sales increase. Uh, CSAs all over the country are selling out because people are now recognizing that this, this system is more important than the typical conventional system. Yeah, no, I think what you're talking about is super relevant. I had a conversation and listeners can listen to the previous episode about nursing and as a work of mercy and, and how nursing is also a human rights issue. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of this dance of both and that I'm hearing you talk about, Ellen, of how what, we, what we're doing to create the kingdom of God where, you know, everyone is experiencing peace and justice, their dignity is honored, and there's true human flourishing and flourishing for all the creatures of the earth, of God's mm -hmm. creation. Like in order to get there, it's a dance of both and of like, yeah, let's, let's work to change the big system through democracy, through protest, through, through prayer, through, you know, syst true systemic change in the traditional ways. But then let's also get creative about imagining the community and the world that we like dream of. And then what are the actions we can do today? What are the ordinary choices that are going to help construct that? So, yeah. you know, like, yeah, if you'd want your food to be um, a just thing, the way you eat, you're not oppressing other people, then think about who your farmers are, what your source is, or if you can grow your own food, right? Exactly. And, and, and then do it <laughs> because then you know you're not going to be contributing to systems that where um, people are ex or horribly maltreated, the earth is, is maltreated and so on. And there yeah. could be this other devil advocate thing like, well, we're gonna put them, the migrants out of work and I don't, I don't think that's the case. They, they will find work mm -hmm. and don't we want them to have a job that is more dignified and safer for them and, right you know, where they are actually valued. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, you know, and during, you know, a couple months ago when the pandemic was starting here in Chicago, um, <laughs> you knew, you heard about this because I told you we couldn't get flour. Um, yeah. There was a period of time where like other things we would go to the store, like we'd put maybe lentils on our list and we couldn't find them. And you just certain things were out because suddenly the system as it is constructed and the distribution the infrastructure, as you talk about, like was not prepared for people eating and per cooking and, 
and, you know, consuming in a whole different way. And, you know, suddenly people weren't getting takeout because they weren't at work for lunch and they were cooking at home and, and, and baking bread. Right. And so, I mean, and that feels like the world that I want to live in is a world I know. Make bread at home, not in a world where people are like, go, 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 grab a sandwich at the grocery store and then go to my I next know. I want to bring up something that was revealing for me during that time when we couldn't get flour at the grocery store in Chicago. Um, I was also reading articles about how farmers were harvesting things, but then because the workers were not there um, to pick up the food, they were dumping tons and tons. And so there was tons of food that was being wasted. Meanwhile, people were starving. So so like how to help, help me understand why why does so that our, why does that happen? And then this is also in Iowa what happened, um, and they quickly recognized it. But um, so when these processing plants closed down, all these people ha- didn't have hog or places to send their like hogs to. So um, people were like having to euthanize all their animals. Okay, so in Iowa, what they did, they quickly recognized was uh, that they purchased live hogs from farmers who lost their market and um, processed them for free for them, just bought them right off their farm. And then they donated the state of Iowa. And then they donated all that meat to the food bank. So the reason why this things weren't matching up and we have food left in the field and we have vegetable shortages and we have meat shortages and animals being euthanized and you know, just yeah. doesn't make sense is because things are meant for the industrial scale. So people buy whole hogs and then a certain part might go to Tyson to be made into such and such mm. or a chicken, only this part or like the waste product might be going to Tyson or Purdue and used for chicken nuggets. Um, also, what happens is like with the vegetable world was, um, and I actually had this issue happen with my farmers. Um, so my farmers are used to selling things to restaurants and food service. So they're selling, you know, uh, 24 bunches of kale mm-hmm. to a restaurant. Well, when the restaurant sale bot- bottomed out, I said to them, because I have a relationship with them, mm. Um, our customers are now households, so I need you to think about how you're selling them to me. Are you going to sell them by the pound or the half pound or the bunch? You know, you got to switch up your packaging. And that is a lot of what happened um, with the meat and with vegetables and the flour and um, those those little drops in the bucket of like a four pound bag of flour. That's a small part of the wheat market. Yeah. You know? I would imagine think most about of the like, wheat goes to like general mills or. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or like okay. cookies and flour and pizza. Right. So pizza like these dough. little packager, like little places that are packaging up four pound bags of flour, they weren't used to getting purchase orders where suddenly they have a million they have to package in a week. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so like in what was happening, uh, you know, an onion, let's say you're like an onion grower and the only way you know how to grow onions 
and the only place you sell them to is for this industrial food service. So you sell them like, in 50 like pound bags. Like onions to all the McDonald's. Like you, that's yeah, what you're farm in 50 farm pound does. bags okay. and we fill up a semi. Right. But if all the McDonald's are closed, then I do with all these onions. Yeah, right. Where do your onions go? They, they so, sit in your field and they rot. Luckily, there, there were some of these big distributors who recognized that. And so mm -hmm. like there's one here in Des Moines, um, Capital City Fruit. They recognized that quickly that okay this industrial system is not buying these things mm. so they started to break up all that mm. and package it into household much like what we were doing so that's wow. why that happened does that help you yeah it's really okay that's and i think our listeners are going to appreciate your okay. explanation yeah. as well because i i don't know i mean a lot of people might not put the dots together about how it really works, how the food gets from the farm to the ordinary person yeah. or the ordinary restaurant. Right. And yeah, it's an infrastructure issue. I think um, everything I know about global hunger, but isn't it true that like the reason why people are starving in the world is not because there's not enough food, but it's because, right. you know, this is messy Jesus business. And and we have talked about how the food system's a mess and it's a mess to feed people. <laughs> and it might mess you up a little bit to do this work. Yes. But, but I'm wondering what, what all this work teaches you about discipleship. How, how do you feel like you're following Jesus in the midst of this or whatever discipleship means to you? I want to grow the food and sell food and prepare food that doesn't have those implications. And... Well, and implications, you mean implications of injustice? Yeah, so uh, injustice for the migrant workers, um, not taking care of the environment. It's hard, though, especially when you live here. You know, it's what you're describing in a way is, well, at least what I'm hearing, is the Franciscan value of minoritas, of being smaller, of being little. Like, it's not, it's not about grand, being grand. It's not about you know, great achievements or um, accomplishments or success in the way that the world sees it. But if you're following Jesus, what we're sometimes called to do are the small little things that people don't notice, that they, they don't see, but yet are extremely impactful. And so by you just living your ordinary life, living on the farm with, the, with Daniel and the kids and the chickens and the pigs and the cows and all the things, like, and, and then being involved in the things you're involved in, you know, you are building the reign of God. And, and I think that's an important thing for, for every listener to understand is like what you're doing is all your fault. You followed your passion. You followed your heart. So you're living out your vocation. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Right. And uh, building, building a healthy community when, when people don't think or vote or even pray the way you do, like, yeah, is, is, is hard hard work. Um, but it's necessary because it's important work. These things that are positive and help people and care for the earth, unfortunately, people just think, oh, that's expensive. And cheap food is horrible. <laughs> what is it? Taste, yeah. What is it? In they the say? ways that it's hurting everybody. Mm -hmm. Cheap is costly. When the pandemic happened, that Band-Aid was exposed. So I think people are finally coming to light. And it's unfortunate that this happens with a lot of things. Unfortunate mm -hmm. that you have to hit rock bottom. 
to come good out of it. The system um, upset changed the things. Well, thank you, Ellen. This has been great. Oh, you're welcome. Julia. And I've always learned a lot when we when <laughs> um, I ask the questions where you just educate me on agriculture and the food system. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I recorded that conversation with my sister Ellen back on July 23rd. And now we're releasing this in September. A lot has changed in her work as a food service director and in the, the situations of, of our society overall. Uh, so I thought it'd be good to call her, catch up, touch base, and hear how it is to be a food service director and be feeding people in her rural school district at this time. Hey, Ellen, how's everything going? Hey, Julia, it's going okay. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. Yeah. Uh, when did you go back to school? Um, August 24th. So was our all, first day back. August 24th. You had all the, all the students are back in the building? No. no so uh, sixth through 12th grade was hybrid because okay. our, um, well, two weeks before school started, our positivity rating was close to 20%. Wow, twenty percent. Uh, yeah, now it's at three three point eight. Oh, that's better. <laughs> yeah, but I found out today from the nurse in the elementary building that seven kids went home today. So yeah, I we're we're sitting about two weeks now, so it's just going to be kind of interesting to see here what happens in the next ten days or so. So yeah, okay, yeah. So I mean, right, then, it's a lot of up and down, a lot of variables you have yeah. to be working with. And we and we just have to be ready to go whenever mm -hmm. we need to switch models. And our school also has about 65 virtual learners as well that are 100% online mm. um, because of maybe a medical issue with a family member or with them. So you feed them too? We feed them as well. Wow. And we okay. fed all the hybrid kids when they weren't at school as well. We provided like meals that were ready for them to prepare at home. So. Yeah. Okay. So, and then you, so 612 is hybrid. So that's, it's like part virtual, part in person. Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah. So like A, B, A, B kind oh, of thing. Like you're, okay. they were split. Like if your last name of the youngest kid in your family started with the letter A through K, mm. you were an A kid. And if, and then the rest of the alphabet was the B kids. So. So they come every other day. Yeah. So we just, now this week we're at a hundred percent capacity up in those two buildings and in the elementary we've always been at a hundred percent the hallways everybody's walking down the hallway all in the same direction everyone's wearing a face covering lunch we now we used to have two lunch periods now we have three lunch periods and all the kids are staggered in the lunchroom they have signed seats because we are also doing contract contact tracing mm. Um, I'm not a part. Hey, and so then, I'm going to talk about the lunchroom a little bit because yeah. I actually just saw a picture. Someone showed me in another lunchroom. They had a plexiglass between in the middle of every lunch table between like so that people wouldn't be breathing across the table on people right. and then plexiglass on the ends. And then they also had a way of like using some sort of sterilizing gun to like clean the whole room. So, so, and that was a different district, but what's it like, what are you guys doing in your, in your school? Uh, sixth through 12th grades, they, um, you know, the traditional long lunch tables, mm -hmm. they sit three on a side, there's about three to four feet between each one. 
and they're all facing the same direction. We don't have enough lunch tables, so we do have some kids who are sitting at individual desks, and those are all six feet apart. Wow. And they're all facing the same direction. I can't even imagine, like, having been a high school teacher for all those years, I just think of the energy in a normal you know. cafeteria and, and talking and playing and walking around, talking to your friends exactly. and sharing it's your lunches. What's it like in there? So the first couple of days, it was really weird. I had a check-in with my staff and they all had to go around the room and say what, you know, what was the word of the day kind of thing. Mm. And the middle school manager just said it was really quiet. The but middle then, school cafeteria quiet. It's really <laughs> hard to manage. I know. Well, and I think they're just, they're just very hesitant because... Yeah. They've got to be anxious and fearful too, mm-hmm. maybe. So the admin actually, after about three or four days, putting music on the loudspeaker. So mm-hmm. we're listening to like CCR and Stevie Nicks and uh, <laughs> That's good. Uh, Steve Earle or, you know, just like okay. 70s music. Okay. Yeah. So it's creating a, a yeah, more relaxed, jivey, crunch. Uh, all the staff are like, Rocking. <laughs> you all um, on the podcast can't see it, but Ellen is dancing right now. So. Um, and then something that we've all, that they've always done in our school is the students wipe their own tables in the middle school. Mm-hmm. So we have continued that now in the high school. And mm-hmm. yes, there's cleaning, but then there's disinfecting. Mm-hmm. So after they're done with their lunch shift, before the next comes in, they actually go to the auditorium after they're done eating about three or four minutes before the bell rings just to like hang out so we can clean before the next lunch shift comes. We have these electric static sprayers and (laughs) it's like a glorified electric (sighs) water gun that's (laughs) spraying sanitizer, disinfectant. And I just like, you just spray last week. I was holding two of them, like one in each hand. It felt felt kind of weird. (laughs) Because I was in the school and I was wearing a face mask. It was weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I like walked between the lunch tables and like, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So every so are all the students being cooperative and like following all the, all the rules and all the ways that you're setting this up and if that's working. Yeah, out. they're they're very cooperative. Oh, I forgot to mention um the lunch what lunch looks like in elementary. Oh um, yeah. They're actually actually getting like a styrofoam to go container with their lunch in it. And then they're taking that outside. The way that we have the elementary set up is they are in a cohort group. So the only kids those kids see are the 20 kids that are in their classroom. Okay. Those are the same kids that they see when they walk down the hall. So nobody else is crossing paths in the halls. Nobody's mm. crossing paths in the lunchroom. When they go outside for recess, they only stay with those 20 kids. Mm-hmm in a certain corner of the playground and they, this is all you get to play with today kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they eat together, they do their specials together, all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, so those kids are eating outside today. It's been rainy and the first week of school it was really hot. So then they're eating in their class. No spills or anything uh-huh. like that. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So that's good to hear because that was part of one of, yeah, one of the questions I had is what the younger kids were doing and um, thinking too about, okay, they can't be outside. It's Iowa. <laughs> You're going to have snowstorms and bad weather eventually. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. And we, we can fit um, kids like safely. We can fit about 90 kids in our cafeteria in the elementary building, but we have 550 kids in the elementary building. Mm-hmm. So 
that'd be like the kindergarten class would be the only one to be able to sit in there kind of thing. Oh, okay. And we might eventually go into that when the weather kind of tra- changes, but right now it's working and everybody's cooperative. Cool. Thanks for the update, Ellen. Yeah. Thank you, Julia. Good to talk to you. I love you so much. And um, I want you to just keep up the great work, feeding the hungry, feeding America, feeding yes. Iowa. It's, I know it can be a thankless job, and especially when it comes to food, people have lots of opinions, <laughs> right? Because people yes, have preferences and needs and wants. But uh, please uh, just hang in there and keep up the good work and, and know that you're doing a ministry by feeding the others. Thanks, Julia. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Ellen and I discuss that the causes of hunger are related to infrastructure and how there is enough food for everyone. With this in mind, I'd like to read a story from the Gospels that reveals how the disciples of Jesus shared from their abundance and there was enough for all to eat. If you can, I invite you to close your eyes and breathe deeply as you listen and pray. Notice what words or phrases stick out for you from the scripture. Is there a particular message that God wants you to hear today? A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 34 through 43. When he disembarked and saw the vast crowd, his heart was moved with pity for them. For they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. By now, it was already late, and his disciples approached him and said, This is a deserted place, and it is already very late. Dismiss them so they can go to the surrounding farms and villages and buy something to eat. He said to them in reply, Give them some food yourself. But they said to him, Are we to buy 200 days wages worth of food and give it to them to eat? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. So he gave orders to have them sit down in groups on the green grass. The people took their places in rows by hundreds and by fifties. Then, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he said the blessing, broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve wicker baskets full of fragments and what was left of the fish. That's episode 10 of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Sister Julia Walsh.
You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, could you please share with your friends, subscribe wherever you find your podcast, and please leave us a review and support us on Patreon. Thanks. And whereas this is the 10th episode, we're ending season one. We'd love your input and there's going to be a listener survey available on our social media channels. So look us up, give us your input, give us your feedback and help us to improve the show. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.